that text together. Please join me again in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing uh, and guidance uh, in reading and studying this together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we confess that we need uh, your Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit who inspired these words uh, to give us hearts to believe, eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know what we need to know in this passage and to trust you for those things that we, we still don't. And we pray, Lord, that you would shape us after the image of Christ and give us faithfulness to trust in you, uh, even through this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, I confess uh, that I don't know much about baseball. Uh, I, in my defense, I didn't grow up in a baseball family. Uh, I have never played a single inning of t-ball or little league. I could probably count the number of major league games that I've been to in my life on a single hand. In fact, uh, the last major league game I went to, I got an autograph by Tim Wakefield, and at the time he was still playing for the Pirates. So that's the kind of family I grew up in, not a baseball family, and I don't know much about the game. But I do know the very first rule, if you want to play the game well, and you probably know it as well, the first rule is to keep your eye on the ball. I know that uh, because that's the advice that my father shared with me. He didn't come from a baseball family either, but he had sons. And so you do what dads do. You take your kids outside somewhere in the front yard, somewhere in the early 90s, and he put a bat in my hand, and he, he stood maybe 15 feet away, and he said, now keep your eye on the ball. It's the perfect piece of advice for somebody who doesn't know the game very much. Reality is, you don't have to know how baseball works to give that advice. You just have to know how your kids work. 
You just have to be aware that the children are often distracted. You need to know that if there's a game in progress and a butterfly lands on second base, your kids are not going to have their eye on the ball. So every parent, even if they don't know the game, knows their kids and they tell them to pay attention. Now, Paul knew, I think, that churches, well, they're a lot like children. They are liable to be distracted by many of the wrong things. They're easily turned aside by things that are controversial or or spectacles or things that look important when in reality they're just scenery. It's one of the problems that we have with the text like this one, a a text that is maybe hard to understand or or hard to apply or, or maybe it just seems from where we sit pretty sensational and if we're not careful we can take our eyes off of what is important. That was the problem that Paul began addressing in the first verses of this chapter. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, and this is a paraphrase, not to take your eyes off the ball. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that we began to look at this text and we began really to consider Paul's warning against false teaching in general. We didn't get too far into the weeds, the the specifics of uh, of this man of lawlessness, the activity of Satan. And last week, if you were here, I encouraged you to approach these verses with a bit of humility. Conviction and faith to hold on to what God has revealed and also faith to let go of what he's left covered. And that challenge is, is still here for us this week as we keep our eyes on the day of the Lord. There is a clear teaching in this passage, even if much of it is hard to understand. And the clear teaching is that Jesus is coming back. He is going to gather his people to himself. And when he comes back, he will put an end to all lawlessness. He will put down all of Satan's deception. Jesus is coming back to save those who hold fast to him. And he will condemn those who turn aside from the gospel. As we look at these verses today, I want to look at them with you under four headings. Four. I realize there's a luncheon, but that's okay. Four headings, not my usual three. Uh, Four headings, the man of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness, the power of lawlessness, and the end of lawlessness. Man, mystery, power, end. Now, verse 3 tells us that the day of the Lord is not going to come until two things happen first. One is what our English Standard Version calls the rebellion, and the other is the revelation of the man of lawlessness, also known here as the son of destruction. It's important that we understand and we consider those two elements together because together they help us to understand what Paul probably had in mind about each other, about the other one. So concerning this rebellion, many Christians have taken this throughout the years to refer to some international political crisis, some sort of overturning of, of world power, and partly because in his, uh, his prophecies about the end times, Jesus told us that those days would be marked by wars and rumors of wars. Those are the kinds of things that get a lot of attention when people begin to get anxious about the day of the Lord. So maybe you remember, right after 9-11 happened in the early 2000s, people began preaching all over again that the day of the Lord was right on the doorstep. 
go back a little bit further into the, the Cold War era, and most Christians expected the day of the Lord to come in the form of a nuclear holocaust. Back up a little bit further during the time of World War II, and there were Christians confidently asserting that Hitler was the man of lawlessness, or maybe it was Mussolini, or maybe it was somebody else. Actually, that pattern continues all the way back to the first coming of Christ. Many Christians point to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to say that the primary sign of the second coming, well, it's going to be some international calamity led by some major political figure. Could be that that's how it happens, actually. But the language here in the passage really points to something that seems to be far more religious than it is political. The figure in verse 3 is called the man of lawlessness. If you have a different translation, it might say the man of sin. The difference there is based on a manuscript change from some of the early manuscripts. But really, if your Bible says the man of lawlessness or it says the man of sin, they both amount to the same idea. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the apostle says this. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices Lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness, he says. So when the New Testament talks about lawlessness, it's not primarily speaking about violent crime. It's not speaking about military coups. It's talking about the rejection of God's right to rule the world that he has created. Sin is Lawlessness, because sin rejects the law of God that tells us that he is God and we are not. That he is the maker and we are the creation. That he is the master and we are the servants. That he is the potter and we are the clay. And sin says, I will have none of it. Thank you. Sin is lawlessness because sin rejects the distinction between God as God and man as man. And it means that Whatever the man of lawlessness may be, whether he's a political figure or a military leader or, or somebody else, first and foremost, he is and will be known as a great sinner in the religious sense, maybe not in, in the worldly sense. He may get along very well with what the world likes, but in terms of what God says, he will be a great sinner who thumbs his nose in the direction of God's authority. You see verse 4, Paul says that he will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship. That is the lawlessness of the man of sin. It's his opposition to God's authority. And as he rejects God's authority, he does so in the context of a great religious apostasy. That's the word in verse 3, translated rebellion in our text. The day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That word indicates a turning away from a position that you used to hold. That is, in a religious sense, and it's always used, uh, that word is always used in the Bible in a religious sense. It is a rejection of God's truth, but it's a rejection of God's truth by those who claimed to love it at first. You know, this is also what Jesus said would mark the last days before his return. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 12, Jesus says this. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away 
And they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. What's the love that Jesus is talking about there? He's talking about love for Christ. He's talking about cold-heartedness toward Jesus. He's talking about apostasy within the visible church. This brings us to maybe one of the most hotly debated phrases in this whole chapter, verse 4. Paul says, the man of lawlessness opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There are various manifold interpretations of what it means for this man of lawlessness to take his seat in the temple of God. Let's break it down uh, a little more clearly by simply looking at those or considering those interpretations that take this phrase literally or those that take this phrase literarily, uh, spiritually, if you will. Among the literalists, you, you may be aware that there is a camp actually pretty closely aligned with many Reformed churches uh, that teaches that what Paul was writing about here was something that was to happen in the actual temple that still stood in Jerusalem while he was writing this letter. The interpretation goes that Paul expected and, and uh, God was prophesying uh, that there would be some leader, probably Gaius Caesar, before that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, who would enter into that temple and proclaim himself to be a god and demand to be worshipped. That's one interpretation. The problem is, if we're taking it literally, that that never literally happened. There was never a Caesar who entered in and set up a literal throne in the temple. And so some others suggest that, well, maybe Paul has in mind a new temple. Well, that hasn't been built yet, a third temple of the Jewish people uh, somewhere in the future. And when this temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, there will be an apocalyptic figure who comes and sets up his temple in, or sets up his throne, excuse me, in the center of the temple of God. The problem is that this is not how the New Testament speaks of the temple of God. Not once Christ has come and made a perfect sacrifice for sinners and been resurrected, the New Testament never speaks of the temple as the temple of God in that way again. Five other times in Paul's letters, he refers to God's temple or the temple of God, and in every instance, he's talking about the church. The same thing happens in the letter to the Revelation, or the letter of Revelation, the letters to the churches. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the one who holds the keys of David says this: the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. What was it that made the temple of Jerusalem the temple of God? What was so special about that place? It was the place that in the Old Testament God said, I will put my name there, and I will dwell there with my people. In the New Testament, Jesus himself, the one who holds the key of David, says, I'm putting my name somewhere else. I'm putting it on the church. This is the temple of God. In the New Testament, once Christ has offered his sacrifice for sinners, the physical temple in Jerusalem is no longer the temple of God. Now the temple of God is the church. 
That's why among Reformed believers, uh, those Presbyterians in the room, the traditional interpretation of the man of lawlessness is that he's someone who will rise up within the church. Some leader who will claim power and position, some historic individual figure who will lead many astray and will claim for himself the authority of God. Let's summarize where we've come so far. Who is the man of lawlessness? The answer is we don't know. We don't know because he hasn't been revealed yet, but when he is revealed, maybe he's a preacher. Maybe he's a pope. Maybe uh, he's some miracle-working televangelist in some third-world country preaching prosperity. We don't know, but we do know that when he is revealed, the true church will recognize him. We will not be able to miss him. He's not the kind of person who just slinks through history undetected and unknown. When he comes, he will be the personification of rebellion against Christ's kingdom from within. He will claim for himself what only belongs to the Lord. It means that when the man of lawlessness is revealed, the church will be faced with a decision. Hold fast to Jesus or turn aside to him. The man of lawlessness. But until that day, the mystery of lawlessness, Paul says, is already at work. Here's our second point, the mystery of of lawlessness. You notice in verses 6 and 7, Paul turns to some of these details that he has told the Thessalonians already in which he does not include in his letters. Things that we're not really clear on. That's a challenge for us. He says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. As confusing as that might sound to you in the English translation, I can assure you the Greek is much worse. It's very, very difficult. And all of our translations, no matter which one you have in front of you, they all have to add at least a few words just to make grammatical sense of what Paul is saying. And even when they do, it's still challenging. We're still left wondering, what does he mean by who or what? And you know it switches there. You recognize that. Who or what is holding back the man of lawlessness? Here's another place where we could spend the next 40 minutes talking through the options, and we won't. But throughout church history, there have been a lot of them. Who is it that restrains? Well, some said the Roman Empire was restraining the man of lawlessness. Others said, well, not the Roman Empire, but the rule of law in, in general. Just civil order, that's the restraining power. Others said that, uh, well, it was the preaching of the gospel that kept uh, this rebellious one uh, back. Others said it's an angelic power. Others say that it's Satan and his demons. At the end of the day, we have no idea. We don't know for sure. Every suggestion has its difficulties. Uh, the question of who is restraining the man of lawlessness ends up being one of those things that we can't be sure about. But in another sense, we do know the answer, don't we? All right, we, we don't know what secondary power is being utilized, what, uh, what mechanism is in play here, but we know for certain that when it comes down to the unfolding of events that have to do with Christ's second coming, the Bible is clear that God himself is sovereign over these things. That he's the one who is working out the plan that he has for his people. 
we're told in the scriptures that the Lord of eternity has determined the times and the seasons for his people and their inhabitations. The God of glory has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It means that the God of salvation has also determined when and how far the son of destruction may advance against the church of God. And that should be a comfort for the church because Paul says that until the day comes that the man of lawlessness is revealed, we know the mystery is already at work. There is a person who is coming, he's telling us. And that person will come at the last day, and we don't entirely know who he is, uh, but it'll be rebellious, and it'll be against the Lord, and there's a person who's coming. But until that day, there's a pattern that we can already see working. Actually, that's the same teaching that John gives us in his letters. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Little children, just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, he says. Actually, it's the same thing that Jesus warned about. He mentioned the false prophets. He mentioned the rumors of war. He talked about nation rising against nation. He talked about earthquakes and famines and destruction in various places. Then he said, all of it is the beginning of the birth pains. You mothers know far better than I do. There is a point of anguish and pain right at the moment of delivery, but up until that, there are other pains that are moving in that same direction, aren't there? Maybe days of labor and, and days worth of contractions before you get to the moment and, and there's a culmination, but the pains follow the same pattern. They're all moving in the same direction. So it is with the mystery of lawlessness. From the beginning of the church age, God's people have lived in the midst of the persecutors and the deceivers. For as long as there has been a people of God, there have been trials and tribulations arrayed against them. Which is why you so often find the New Testament reminding us that we are in the last days. When Christ has come, the last days have begun. And they will culminate when he returns, which he has not. But until then, the mystery is already at work. We're already experiencing the birth pain. It also means that for as long as the kingdom of Christ has been made up of sinners in the process of sanctification, the same lawless temptation to rebellion has been hiding dormant in the remaining sinful nature that is in every saint the world has ever known. We like to think that lawlessness is out there, that lawlessness will come from somewhere else. The reality of our human condition is that if the Lord had not withheld his hand, we would be the men of lawlessness. You would be the man of lawlessness. And if you say to yourself, well, no, not me, somebody else maybe, but not me, you don't really understand how dire the situation is. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It always has been, actually. From the very moment uh, of the first fall in the garden, the Lord placed an enmity, he said, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. From the very first curse, the Lord determined there would be a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, between the elect of God and the powers of darkness, between the children of the promise and the danger that remains in them and remains in the world around them. So already, Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is at work. It follows the same pattern 
of the man who will be revealed at the last day, it works in the same channels that will appear at the second coming. But just like the man of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is now being restrained. By whom? By what? By the work of God. And specifically, in his people, by the work of the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin and drawing them to repentance and and building them up in sanctification. He's the one who holds back that lawlessness from breaking out in any of our lives at any moment. The Lord who keeps his church has fixed his purposes and his plan for his kingdom. And just as the Antichrist cannot be revealed one second before our God has determined so also the mystery of lawlessness can't land a single punch that God has not decreed. It means that at the end of the day, the mystery of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness are both in the hands of the Lord. That brings us to our third point, the power of lawlessness. Here's where some people might want to begin to push back. I just said that God is sovereign, God is directing, God is the one who is leading and restraining and bringing the man of lawlessness in his time and restraining and allowing, in a sense, the mystery of lawlessness for his own ends. But verse 9 tells us very clearly, it says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Well, how can it be then, if your pastor's right, how can it be that God is sovereign over the man and the mystery and yet the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan? How can those two be even in the same breath, even in the same sentence? Certainly God is not the author of sin. Certainly he's not to be blamed for the apostasy that rises up in the name of Satan. Certainly God, who scripture tells us cannot lie, is not the one who deceives or gives falsehood in any conceivable way. So how do we make sense of this? The language that Paul uses there in verse 9 actually makes it a bit more dramatic. Read it again. He says that the Antichrist, the the one that the rest of the New Testament calls the Antichrist, and we're calling the man of lawlessness, he says the Antichrist comes with three things. He says with power, with false signs, and with wonders. It actually sets up the lawless one as an almost direct parody of the ministry of Jesus. Because those are the same three things that the New Testament says Jesus came with when he came in his earthly ministry. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up in the temple uh, and he proclaimed the first Christian sermon. The point of his sermon, as all Christian sermons, was to know who Jesus is. And here's what he said. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with powers and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In your ESV, it will say mighty works instead of powers, but it's the same word. It's dunamis, it's power means that when Jesus came, he came with miracles, explosive miracles, things that people could see, things that were were powerful and dynamic. When Jesus came, uh, those miracles pointed beyond themselves. Here were the full bellies out in the wilderness, but it wasn't really just about having your belly filled, was it? 
Here was Lazarus, four-day dead, hopping out of a grave, covered in clothes, trying to make his way out when there should have been a stench already, his sister said. And the miracle points beyond just one man being resurrected, didn't it? Powers and signs and wonders pointing to the fact, authenticating the reality that Jesus was the true Messiah. In 2 Thessalonians, those powers are just as real. But the message is completely false. It seems that when the man of lawlessness comes, he'll be able to do a few tricks. Just, just like the magicians in Egypt were able to make serpents out of walking sticks. He'll be able to do some things. There will be real miracles. There will be real powers. But those miracles and wonders will be false signs. They will not point in the right direction. They will instead point in the direction of God's judgment. And if you have any question that God is powerfully directing the things that happen with the man of lawlessness at the last day, verse 11 makes it crystal. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. And then notice, read it again, notice the language of God's purpose. Notice the language of God's intent. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are some in this church who are relatively new to this kind of teaching. And at precisely this point, you may want to begin saying, that can't be true, can it? That's not the way God works, is it? It might be unsettling, but it is thoroughly biblical. This is what is being described here in 2 Thessalonians. This is the same pattern of judgment against sin that we find in Romans chapter 1 taken to its logical conclusions. There in uh, chapter 1 of Romans, the first thing that happens is that unrighteous men reject the glory of God and instead go after the shame of creation. They exchange the glory of God and instead they worship images resembling angels and, and mortal men and animals and creeping things on the earth. They do not believe the God who is known to them, known in their consciences by the things that are made, to, to, re, to realize that there is a God who's made everything around us. They suppress that truth, and as judgment for that suppression, what does the Lord do? He gives them over to the sin and the delusion that they wanted. He hands them over as an act of judgment. So he gives them up, it says, to the lusts of their hearts. He gives them up, it says, to dishonorable passions. He gives them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, to be filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. This is the biblical model. The God of all righteousness punishes unrighteousness with further unrighteousness. He punishes sin with further sin. He pulls back his restraining hand of grace. He allows those who turn from him to descend further into slavery, to wickedness and unbelief and false delusions. He allows sin-hardened hearts to become granite, just like they wanted now you know why Paul was so emphatic in verse 3. 
Let no one deceive you in any way. He's saying, don't start down that road. Don't begin to move in that direction. Don't turn aside little by little to things that, that encourage falsehood, to things that say, God has spoken, but you don't need to hear that. God's word is true, but you don't need to, to obey it. Don't let anybody deceive you, he's saying. Don't give a single theological inch to the deceptive idea that would have you listen to the wisdom of men rather than the word of God. He's telling us, do not believe the lie that says you can deny God's truth and escape God's judgment. Because that's the real power of lawlessness, isn't it? The power of lawlessness is not deception, but judgment. It's the power of lawlessness because that's the power that even lawlessness will have to answer to in the last day. Lawlessness itself must submit. And that brings us finally to the end of lawlessness, our fourth point. The end of lawlessness. There are two ways that we can think about the end uh, of lawlessness. We could first, as, as we've been doing for a little bit, talk about where lawlessness ends up what it leads to. What is the outcome of lawlessness? There's an end in that sense, and we've seen that already. The end of lawlessness of judgment, uh, excuse me, is judgment. Verse 8 applies that to the lawless one. It says that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's no contest. He can't stand for a moment by the breath of his mouth without even a word. And then verse 12 applies that same judgment to all those who follow the lawless one. All those who follow the Antichrist says all will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We've seen that. There's an outcome to lawlessness and the end of lawlessness in that sense is judgment. There's another way that we can think about the end of something and that is to consider its purpose. Our, our catechism asks that question, right? What is the chief end of man. The question is, what are we here for? What have we been made for? What is God's purpose in creating humanity, in giving us existence? What are we here for? What is our end? And the answer, of course, is glory and enjoyment. We might want to ask the same question about lawlessness. What is it here for? Why is God allowing it? Why is he sovereign over these things in this way? Why does verse 3 read uh, the way that it does? Why isn't it different? Why doesn't it say, you know, that day will not come unless the revival comes first? Why doesn't it say that that day will not come until the joy of the gospel spreads throughout the nations, until our societies are remade into some shining Christian utopia? Why doesn't it say those things? What's the chief end of lawlessness? And the answer is glory and enjoyment. So that we who are God's people will learn to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why not? The psalmist tells us that God is the one who makes even the wrath of man to praise Him. The Bible tells us that he's the one who opens and nobody can shut. He's the one who shuts and nobody can open. 
The Bible tells us that he's the potter to whom no mere lump of clay can say, what are you doing with me? He's the God who orders all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul says. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. So if lawlessness is part of the all things that he orders, then that means that the chief end of lawlessness is the praise of his glorious grace. This is how a sovereign God directs creation. There once was a young man who had ten older brothers and some pretty fanciful dreams. Those ten older brothers hated that younger man, and they hated what he was dreaming, so they decided to take matters into their own hands, and they beat him, and they stripped him, and they threw him in a pit, and when traders came along, they sold him into slavery, and they patted themselves on the back and said, now we'll see what will become of his dreams. So that at the end of his life, Joseph can tell them the real story. And he can say to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Could not the same thing be said of the lawless one at the last day? Could not the Lord Jesus Christ stand before he kills the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and say, you meant it for evil, but my father meant it for good. In the day of Christ, when his glory and his goodness are revealed, the whole world will see that the Lord has delivered a people that didn't deserve it. A people who are every bit as lost and worthy of judgment as those that he chose to pass over, actually. There's no difference, is there? The seed of lawlessness is buried in the breast of every person who's ever lived. And from the time we come forth out of the garden, the lie of the serpent is our native language. And we are born into this world as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We enter the universe willing and ready to exchange the glory of God for the shame of creation. That's who we are. No different from those who go astray after the lie, but by the grace of God, when the lawless one comes, it will be seen that there is a people who refuse to follow him. A people who have loved the truth, Paul says. A people who will be saved because they've not been deceived. Well, where does that come from? If we're the same lump of clay that they've been made out of. Not from our wisdom, not, not from our piety, not because we, you know, we aced our exams in AP eschatology. Right? Not because we were smart enough to figure it out and they weren't. On the day of Christ, there will be a people who have refused to take pleasure in unrighteousness because the Lord has called them and for no other reason. Because he died for their sins, because he rose for their salvation, because by his word and spirit he calls them out of death and damnation. And we who were dead come limping out of the grave just like Lazarus did. Waiting for somebody to untie us because we couldn't have done it ourselves. But we come out because he's called us. We believe because he's called us. Verse 10 says, we who love the truth will be saved. Why? Because he's called us. What is the chief end of lawlessness? Well, what if? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. What's the chief end of lawlessness? Well, it's to the praise of God's glorious grace. To show that what we don't deserve, the Lord does for his children anyway. Dear friends, keep your eye on the gospel. When Christ returns, he will put an end to lawlessness, and then we will see the glory of him who called us. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us hearts of faith enough to believe it. We pray much more that you would give us faith to cling closely to Christ, to love the truth, believe the gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, that you might call those whom you have not yet called effectually by your Holy Spirit, to trust in you, to find life in your name, to hold fast to you and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised again for our salvation and is coming again. We pray, Lord, that you would give every person here that same faith. Cause us, Father, to trust in you. And as we trust, cause us to walk with you, with you until that day when we see these things fulfilled. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table which proclaims to us the salvation of our glorious God. The work of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary and the the meal that he has promised to share with those who trust him. This is a table that points in both directions. Paul tells us that as often as we eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death, what he's done, until he comes, what he's doing. And so we come to this table to remember and to look forward, to trust and to hope, to be drawn near in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one who's done what we don't deserve, what we could never do for ourselves. He's the one who calls us out of death and unto life in himself. If he's made you to trust him, this table is for you. You're called to come and eat and drink by faith to receive the promises that he has for his church. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and publicly professed that he is your Savior, come and eat and drink and receive the gifts and the promises of the gospel. If you've not yet done that, we ask that you would allow the elements to pass. Consider whether the Lord may be calling you to himself as well. And then one day we pray and we hope, come and eat and drink together with us while we look forward to eating and drinking together in the kingdom. We read God's uh, institution through Christ in Mark's gospel. That as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer.